Welcome to this week's episode of Getting on the Green. I'm really excited to sit down with Elka Lachlan today. She is a truly business-minded individual. She has worked in the real estate field and is a business consultant now. She goes into businesses and basically finds issues within it, whether it be in the structure or the individuals who are creating a stagnant environment and hampering the growth of the overall business to achieve the goals that they'd like to. So let's get started. All right, so thank you very much for being here, Elka. We're thrilled to get going and uh, hear some of what you have to say. I just gave a basic bio, but uh, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself, who you are, what you are currently doing, and how you got there. Um, well, thank you for having me. What a treat. Um, as far as my, my background, I, I mean, you know, grew up in Louisiana, business degree, LSU, came to Houston right after graduation and literally fell into commercial real estate. I mean, too long of a story, but literally when I got the job for the first six months, I didn't know what the company did. And this is at CBRE. And so kind of fake it till you make it. But over the years I have developed, well, first off, um, you know, I have a passion for helping people and I was very blessed over the course of my career, CBRE, um, I spent 20 years in NAI Partners. I spent five years part of the NAI Global Network and just was very fortunate to have amazing opportunities, wonderful mentors. And I, through the course of my career, started to develop a um, skill set in the behavioral sciences. Um, so I was incorporating when I was working with brokers, whether it be developing teams or you know hiring brokers. I utilized various assessment tools, and over time, I became very good at using them. So consequently, it was part of, uh, I guess, a component of the hiring of brokers, such that when I decided to go out on my own, um, it's something that I incorporated in my practice and ultimately became certified in both behaviors utilizing the DISC profile and motivators using a program uh, called Driving Forces. And it's really elevated my practice because I'm integrating behavioral sciences and working with smaller brokerage firms, whether it be a brokerage home, uh, firm as a whole or uh, the owner of the firm or individual brokers. I, I use these assessment tools. So are you actually working as a broker, like doing deals or are you um, focusing more on management and um, like uh, broker development? Uh, what, what, well, are, what are you focusing on? That's a great question, and and really, if you if you identify and look at my my company, the um, I guess value proposition is um, I'm a, a change management organization organizational leadership development company to the commercial real estate industry. Um, I am a licensed broker, but I am not a practitioner. I'm not a deal maker. Um, I work typically in a consultative capacity with smaller brokerage firms. Um, as much as I love the bigger ones, you know, CBRE and JLL, they don't need me. Cushman Wakefield, they've, you know, they've got leadership departments. So um, I'm my target audience and client base are the smaller brokerage firms where typically the owner of the firm is also the number one producer. And consequently, they are trying to build and run a company when their skill set is geared to and their passion is typically geared to deal making. So consequently, they don't know how to set up strategy. They don't know even where to start. Um, you know, hiring is part of the, the um, I guess, 
value proposition, but basically I go in there and help an owner first set the strategy. Where do you want to be? You know, and how are we going to get there? We're going to use the strategic plan as a roadmap. Then we integrate um, these behavioral models, um, also setting up what I call broker recruiting models. There is a process on how you recruit and identifying, you know, your, your target audience within the brokerage community. Are we looking at hiring senior producers? Are we looking at mid-tier producers? Are we looking at the associate level? And if you look at those three categories, each one has a different process when you go to the market to hire that particular um, broker. So I help my clients understand, you know, one size does not fit all. Fit all. Um, also, I work in developing a leadership program at the associate level because oftentimes when a young person comes into the industry, the, the old operating model, for lack of a better word, is th they say they're, they're hiring a junior and they're training the junior, but what they're really doing is the senior broker needs help, so they hire a junior broker to go help the senior broker, and the only training that junior broker is typically going to get is what what are the skill sets needed to help the senior broker produce? Mm -hmm. So consequently, they are not getting a full spectrum of learning the industry. And it's, it's very much still an apprenticeship style of learning, learning by doing. But if you look at the old model, the you know senior broker hires the junior broker, we'll call that the old operating model, they actually think that's what they're doing. It's an apprenticeship, right? You're mm -hmm. working for the senior guy. But as I said earlier, you're only learning what is going to be to the benefit of the senior broker. And unfortunately, just the compensation structure of the industry and how we bring young people into the industry, um, majority of them come in at a draw. So immediately they're behind the curve because they're, they're going into a hole of debt that once they actually get to a position to go on commission, um, they're having to pay back this draw so that's you know undue stress they are um, in an industry that is very competitive and unfortunately um, they're treated that way and instead of being uh, deemed a member of the team and let's let's open up and share information um, oftentimes it's the person uh, quote-unquote training that person is is guarded and doesn't necessarily share enough information such that by you know, even if if you're lucky, that person will, will hit it to 18 months, but chances are they're probably going to resign. So you've invested, whether, you know, six months or 18 months, you're investing into this young person that ultimately is going to leave. So um, it's it's unfortunate, but, you know, my, my whole, and I keep going back to the word value proposition, which oftentimes, you know, sounds kind of, um, you know, the new buzzword, business word. But the reality of it is I go in there and say, look, we're going to do it differently. So really, uh, when I'm working with my clients, I'm teaching them methods that are um, counterintuitive. And consequently, it makes them uncomfortable. It's, it's instituting change. So it, for a while, it, it takes a while for the client to trust me that it, it will work out. But the difference is with my clients, I'm already at an advantage because they know they need to change. They're just not sure how to change. Mm -hmm. And so once you start to go in there and help them institute change, it's uncomfortable because, you know, they're no longer doing what they were accustomed to doing. And also I remind my clients that what got you to one level of success 
may not get you to the exactly. next level of success. You have to be and able to adjust. What causes that is your habits, right? So we look at habits and we, we're going to look at what you're currently doing and let's get rid of, rid of all the things that you don't need to be doing in order to elevate your game. So for example, when I was talking about um, the typically my, my client base of, of being a small brokerage firm, and as I mentioned, the owner is typically the number one producer and their uh, passion really is for deal making and not running a company, but they are, you know, ultimately it's their responsibility and they're running this company and they're not doing a very good job of it. And fortunately, the clients that I work with know that they're not doing a good job. So it's one thing to go in there and help someone who says, yeah, I know I need to change and kind of guide them versus going in there and like, we're perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't have the time or the energy to go consent, convince someone they need to change. So that's not even part of my client base. I mean, I've had clients where I've, you know, gone in there and made an assessment and then have gracefully exited saying, I don't believe I can help you. When the reality of it is I had to get the hell out of there because just the toxicity of the environment. And that's another thing too integrating culture so what what is the organization's culture um what are we um, are we creating an environment that has shared core values and um are we playing to those values every day are we, are we living those values every day because it's one thing you know walk the walk but talk the talk and unfortunately in our industry there's still a lot of and it's going to sound harsh but lip service as to who they are and what they do as a culture but the reality of it is I can go into an organization and immediately do a quick assessment of like where this person, I mean, this, this particular company falls on what we call the cultural map. And, you know, I was very fortunate to work with two gentlemen. Um, one is named uh, John King and the other is Dave Logan. And they've written an amazing book called The Coaching Revolution as well as Tribal Leadership. So these are my playbooks. And um, I've Basically, I don't want to say necessarily mastered their process, but a big part of what they do is identifying culture, and and there is what they call a cultural map, and I won't get into it because it's, it's, it's fascinating, but it would be too long to explain, but the gist of it is there's a cultural map that has five different cultures of the organization. The very bottom is basically um, uh, ineffective and, and mostly... Hold on, let me get this, make sure I'm saying the proper terminology. The bottom of the cultural map is what we call undermining. And these are organizations where, um, you know, it's every man for themselves. Uh, you know, they're, they're not in an environment where Timmy could never even be introduced. Um, and at the top of the cultural map is an organization that we call a vital organization. And that's where, you know, everyone is living the core values of the organization and that's really where a team can can conspire to you know achieve greatness i know again Mm -hmm. it sounds hokey but you know it's not just going in and fixing one component and um you know my my typical um i guess my my structure as far as working with the clients is typically i get on a a six-month assignment because it doesn't happen overnight and Mm -hmm. when you're when you're instituting change you have to be mindful that it's, it's not a quick fix. I mean, you know, it took you how many years to get here, depending upon the age of the organization. Um, say the company's been in, in uh, business for 15 years. Well, it didn't happen overnight that you got to this culture, so it's not gonna help um, happen overnight that we institute change. 
But the good news is, and as I said it earlier, is when I'm working with clients and we start to achieve effective change and they start to see the impact on their organization, they become really excited and then they want to go to the next level. So for example, one of my clients, um, he engaged me uh, actually for just one project. And this is when I first was starting out and he, um, I was fortunate to get you know quite a bit of press from the, um, the various real estate industry publications and he read an article about me and my, starting my company. And so reached out to me and said he'd like to meet with me. We met for lunch. We had a two-hour lunch. It was it was wonderful. And finally, when I was finished, I said, you know, I, thank you very much. This has been a lovely afternoon. But I got to ask you, um, it sounds like you have a healthy company. What is it you need of me? And he goes, I don't know. Give me some ideas. So I went back to the drawing board, came up with several ideas. He engaged me for one project, and I've been with him now for three years. So after I did that project, he saw so much value in the project. And, and that particular project was working with his brokers and developing their individual business plans that would ultimately roll up to the company business plan. And I also gave each broker an assessment. And the funny thing is when meeting with these brokers, I had a general meeting. I explained, you know, here are the tools. Here's how you're going to draft your individual business plans. I'm going to set aside an hour for each one of you. And one, one broker balked, like, are you kidding me? An hour? I said, look, if it takes 15 minutes, it takes 15 minutes. Every meeting went over an hour, and I had two meetings go three hours. Because what I did was I integrated these behavioral sciences with their assessments and as it related to their business plan and how can we put these two together and have you achieve a greater um, a revenue stream and how you can build your business more effectively. And so the owner was, you know, so impressed that he he engaged me. At that point, it was just a three-month assignment because I was, you know, I was new. I, I was trying to figure out my personal model, mm -hmm. and here it is, over three years later, and he he's my number one client, and um, um, it's been wonderful. So I, I make sure that when I'm engaging with a new client, even through the interviewing process, I explain to them, you know, this isn't going to happen overnight, and. Um, you know, I let them speak to my current client base. I'm like, you know, you're entrusting your company to me. So therefore you need to speak to some of my current clients and understand how I operate. And but thus far it's, it's worked out very well. Okay, so that was a whole lot of information. I've got a couple things I jotted down while you were talking uh, that I wanna speak with you about. Um, first and foremost, uh, are there specific characteristics that, um, you're looking for when you come into a, uh, a company, I guess, um, or when you're assessing a company that uh, are positive characteristics, like specific, if you can name one or two characteristics of either the owner, the company, or individuals within um, that you're looking for specifically? Right, that's a very good question. Um, part of it is intuition. You know, I walk in, I've been doing this for almost 30 years, and oftentimes the culture is palpable. I mean, mm -hmm. you can feel it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, something as simple as if no one in the organization is smiling, then <laughs> something's wrong, right? Um, or I walk into the organization and you can just feel the energy and it's positive and people are helping one another. Something as simple as just pure observation helps me understand where the co company lies um, as it relates to a cultural map. Okay. Um so we had also mentioned um, 
kind of withholding information when somebody's first starting out? Um, maybe when you're apprenticing, whether you're the apprentice or the mentor. Um, so it, it brought up something interesting that I actually faced. Um, I was asking one of my colleagues to come on to the show, do a podcast, and they were asking me, okay, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, what do you want to talk about? What do you excel at? What are, you know, what do you think is your best trait, for instance, in the real estate world? Um, and that's kind of how I approach most of the people I interview is, you know, I, I, it's not like I'm asking them to say a specific thing, for instance, I, I want what they're interested in because that's what comes off the best. So uh, interestingly enough, he told me, um, I really don't want to talk about my strategy because that's my trade secret. That's how I make money. And so what was interesting is he was more than willing to teach me as a mentor, even though technically I think I'm older than him by a year, but he's been in the, in the industry longer. Um, so he was more than willing to teach me but he didn't want to go on my podcast and teach everybody because in theory, that's how he makes money. So it, it immediately uh, clicked with me when you were talking about withholding information. And, you know, I'm sure there's a million different uh, intricacies within each scenario of a mentor and um, basically mentee where they might feel like they need to withhold some information or they might be forthcoming. You know, you would you would hope as a mentee that your mentor is kind of giving you the, the fast pass. You know, they went through the hardship, so they're giving you the, the quick version of what they dealt with. Um, so I just found that very interesting that, that you mentioned that as well, because I, uh, I felt that as well. Well, I mean, it's, it's classic in our industry by virtue of looking of how our, our professionals in the brokerage arena are compensated mm -hmm. 100% commission right? exactly so oftentimes when you throw in the word team many professionals feel like as if they're giving something up right um, so the pie is diminishing because I have to give something up which would be operating from what I call the law of scarcity right there's not enough and if I therefore if I team I'm giving something up mm -hmm. versus the law of prosperity is if, if I team with someone who has a complementary skill set, we can grow the pie, pie exponentially bigger. Agreed. And therefore, we will all make money. Exactly. And oftentimes, and it's interesting because you mentioned this, this person was younger than you are. Well, unfortunately, he probably was hired under the old operating model, and he was working for a senior broker, and that's the, how the senior broker treated him. Um, and unfortunately that's how they learned that I can't share my information. So it's a repeating cycle. And so when I go in there, I, I again, I, I have to you know, make sure you understand that the people who hire me know they need to change. So that in itself is huge. I'm not having to go in there and convince someone mm -hmm. they need to change. So they know they need to change. Now I just need to teach them how to institute change. And a part of that is having them understand the difference between the law of scarcity and the law of prosperity. You're, you're saying that uh, the companies already know that they need to change, but a company includes more than just one person. So how does the buy-in of the company as a whole affect you versus, for instance, just the CEO or the owner might know that they need to change, but the other 40 employees might think that they're perfect. So how does that come into play? That is an excellent question. 
and you're absolutely right. It's not just one person that is going to, um, the, so the owner, yes, he needs, he realizes that he or she, unfortunately, there's mm-hmm. still not a whole lot of she's, there's just a lot of he's, but um, anyway, the big part of that is when you start to institute change, I, I tell my um, clients, so one in particular, the gentleman I mentioned that I've been working with for three years now, when we went through this business planning process, and I, not only was I assessing these brokers from the behavioral sciences standpoint, but I was assessing them from just my intuition. And there were several brokers that I identified that I think that, you know, they seem like great guys, but I don't think they're going to buy in to what we're doing. And he was, you know, obviously, uh, but they're loyal. I said, you know, let's not confuse loyalty with performance. And I can find you good people who can perform, who can also be loyal. And what I shared with him, I said, here's what typically happens when I go into an organization to help, you know, bring about change. Three things happen. One, there's going to be a group of people in the organization. We're like, well, it's about damn time we make changes around here. This is awesome. There's going to be a second group, and they're like kicking and screaming, oh, no, I hate change. I hate, This is horrible. I hate change. And then they get over the hump, and they're like, this is amazing. This is nirvana. The third group are what I call people who will ultimately deselect. They realize that they cannot um, move forward with the organization because now their performance will be managed, and, and um, oftentimes they're underperforming. And they're using excuses or they're, you know, whatever it is they're doing over the the time that they've been employed and they're not performing, they've been doing something they've been able to get away with, right? Because no one's been managing that. Well, when you start to come in and and institute change, they realize, oh, man, my cover's blown and they're going to realize I'm not performing. And oftentimes they leave on their own. Uh, Hence, they deselect and you never even have to ask them to leave. And when I shared that with my client and then it actually started to happen, he thought I was a magician. Like, how did you know this? You know, but it's just, that's what I see. And, um, it's an interesting process, but what's really great is when that group of people deselect, the organization is already, um, elevated because the rest of the organization are like, wow, they're finally gone because everyone else in the organization knows that person or that group needs to leave. And when they do, it's a very, very powerful message. So how about the uh, individuals who are, let me just give the name like cancerous. So you have the athletes who are cancers in the locker room. Like that's, that's a, you know, a, like a metaphor that, you know, all, all sports fans understand that concept. So what about the cancers in the, employment locker room per se what so how do you approach them it's interesting that you would ask this question because it, it's definitely um you see it in, in our industry again because it's a commission-based industry mm-hmm. so it's looking at individual performance mind you let's set aside the fact that i'm, I'm pro team that's what I, all i talk about is teaming but in in the scenario that you're asking is the cancerous um individual Typically, it's going to be a senior producer that's making a lot of money. And so leadership um, oftentimes excuses the bad behavior because they're making so much money, right? So 
unfortunately, that's what sets the culture. Um, the theme is, you know, I'm great and you're not, and I have the stats to show it. And oftentimes, if you look in the context of the broker and the, the other people in the organization, that high-performing broker mindset is, I'm the star and you're my supporting cast, right? And everyone knows it. However, leadership continues to accept this, hence they believe no change will happen. The most powerful thing a leader can do when they're wanting to bring about change in their organization is get rid of that cancerous broker. And yes, he makes a lot of money, but once you get rid of that person, everyone else will step up to the plate because they know they're valued and they will be supported. So the simple, the simple question, I mean, the simple answer to your question is you usually can pick them out right away. Um, and, 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 and actually the leader of the organization already knows that person is the cancer. But again, getting back to the language, as I mentioned, the law of prosperity versus the law of scarcity, that leader of the organization is operating from scarcity because they're afraid if this guy leaves, okay, nobody will take their spot. How are we going to replace his money? Mm -hmm. You know, so how are we going to replace that revenue stream? But if you operate from the law of prosperity, they're like, you know what, let's get rid of him and let's help everyone elevate their game. Okay. So what can an individual do basically to make them uh, the, the person that you as an outsider who comes into a company, um, what, can, what can an employee do or an independent contractor do to set themselves apart from the other people? Um, you know, whether that's showing leadership potential or, you know, the ability to work as a team. Um, but like, what, what can they do to prove that they are integral, they want to be there, and that they're somebody who you want to keep in the company for a long time? Excellent question. Because, you know, in identifying who the next leaders of the organization may be, and what, the, you know, when you say, what can a person do going into that organization? I think they just have to have the mindset that I'm here to help. And they roll up their sleeves and, you know, help when needed. Uh, do the job no one else wants to do. Stay late if they have to. I mean, I'm not old school that you have to be in at 7 a.m. and leave at 9. You know, today with technology, also with, you know, we have five generations in the workforce and a Gen X, the Gen Z, they're not going to work like the baby boomers, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're not performing. And so, so let's put that, you know, old paradigm of you got to be there from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. But with that new person going in, they need to stay a little later. They need to, you know, make sure that they're doing as much as possible to help elevate their game. But once they come into a position where they start to prove themselves, if they need to leave and work from home, it's not a question about it. And, and I just think that's just initially how it has to happen. But I think the biggest thing is just step up. Something as simple as a promise, right? We better honor the promise. If you say you're going to do something, then do it. But if you can't, it's incumbent upon you to go back and, for lack of a better word, renegotiate the transaction, right? Someone made a request, you made a promise, and now that's not going to happen. Well, you need to go back to the person who's made that request and, again, renegotiate the terms. I said I could get it to you by this evening. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to. How would tomorrow afternoon at 5 work? 
chances are they're going to say, yeah, that's not a problem. But if you didn't show up and you didn't fulfill that promise, well, that's X against you, uh-huh. right? Can't even keep, the guy can't even keep a promise. At least you're so showing something, initiative some something the other as way. as simple as, you know, do what you say and say what you do. Um, mm-hmm. It's just that, that basic. So something you mentioned is uh, looking to the future and uh, potentially finding new ownership or the new leaders coming forward. When should a business be looking to the future like that? Well, you know, depending upon, so let me, let me just step back real quickly. You know, as I said earlier, my client base is the smaller brokerage firm. Mm-hmm. Typically, as I stated, the owner is the top producer. And he's also probably owns 100% of the company. And again, operating from scarcity or prosperity, oftentimes they think, well, I've built this, this is my own, and I'm going to keep 100% of the ownership. But then you're looking at succession planning, okay? You're getting older. And, you know, yes, you've built this amazing organization, but what is your legacy that you're going to work till you're 100? You know, um, and I think if you start to identify talent, the up-and-comers, the next owners in the company, and and put them on a partnership track. You're not just giving the person a piece of your company, but they are demonstrating to you that they can take on an ownership position. So, for example, with my client I mentioned from the very beginning, you know, it's exactly what happened. He's, you know, mid-50s. He's been in the industry, has had his company for 15-plus years. And he owns 100% of the company. So what is his, what is his succession plan? Well, he didn't have one. So what we did was, okay, we don't want to give anyone ownership immediately, right? Because you have to determine, do, are they even um, um, capable of owning? Mm-hmm. And are they uh, trustworthy? And, you know, anything you would think about of, you know, are you going to hand the keys over to the car? And so what we did, I said, okay, let's, let's identify three young professionals, what I would call mid-tier. You know, they've been in the organization or the industry for say like eight years, right? Um, Let's tap some individuals and let's create an advisory board, your personal board of directors, your personal advisory board, and start to share with them what it is you see for the future and what their future might look like. And then over time, bringing them in to developing strategy, bringing them in to making important decisions such that over time you're going to say, okay, this person is primed for leadership, ownership, this person not so much. But this person still could be valued and still continue to be part of the organization. They're just not partnership material. So um, there are various ways that you can do to identify, but I think it's important that you know, someone who has their own company and you know has been doing it for so long, and you know, unfortunately, those who who have been doing it so long and have 100% of the ownership of the company, it's going to be hard to extricate themselves from the organization if they don't start to put some type of succession planning in place. Do you find that uh, doing that type of succession planning and involving people more in the actual operations decisions? Do you, do you find that that helps buy-in throughout the company? Absolutely, and let, but let me clarify, they're not, they're not coming in and doing operational functions. 
they're just now helping in the decision making mm-hmm. because the last thing we want to do is take a producer out of production and put them into leadership in, uh-huh. in a sense okay. of running a company, right? We can hire people to run your company. We can hire you a COO. We can hire a CEO. And that's another thing too. Typically that owner, just by the sheer fact of ownership, is the CEO. Mm-hmm. But again, they're not managers they're brokers and i'm not saying i mean it's not 100 of course you have people who own a company and they're a broker Uh and they're awesome at leadership but the vast majority of them are um for lack of a better word renegades right they're they're again 100 commission so it takes a certain type of person to do that right so um yes we applaud them and they're great at what they're doing but again what i said earlier is what got you to the first level of success may not get you to the next level of success unless you start to break your bad habits. And oftentimes the bad habit that the owner has is he has to control everything and every decision has to come through them. And so they're the bottleneck. Unfortunately, those who continue to operate that way, I mean, they're slowly killing themselves, right? I mean, ultimately you're gotta be miserable, your health is affected, And again, um, that goes to the lack of trust. Now, if you can create that culture where you have shared core values and you're hiring the right people into the organization that matches your values, that's key too. We're not gonna hire someone and try and convince them that they need to be uh, living our core values. They're gonna already demonstrate the core values before we hired them, right? And then once they're into the organization, you have the ability to, you know, you're creating trust. You're creating an environment where that owner now feels comfortable of, you know, um, handing over some of the duties and responsibilities and freeing them up so that they can go do what they do best. And oftentimes, you know, that's they, they just want to make deals, do deals. And, you know, another thing that we, we haven't talked about, but because we're in a commission-based industry, oftentimes brokers and leadership don't value the broker's time. So if we looked at the old operating model and we bring someone in to support the senior broker and the senior broker is only teaching what they believe the junior broker needs in order to elevate the senior broker's uh, production levels, what you're not factoring in is say that producer is, you know, a million dollar producer. And, and so I go back to, you know, the, the Fair Labor Standards Act of the EEOC, and there are 200, I mean, 2,080 hours in a work year. That's on the books, right? Well, brokers far and beyond work much longer hours. But just to give you a perspective, if you want a million-dollar producer, he needs and she needs to be doing um, $500-hour functions. So let's just say the senior broker gives the junior broker's an hour a day for a week. So five, um, five times five is 25, so $2,500 that week. Essentially he gave to the junior broker because he wasn't in production. So now you're doing that over the course of six months. I mean, you do the math. It's, it's a lot of Thousands money of dollars. that, although it's not actually earned, mm-hmm. it's lost potential, lost potential because that broker was not out there producing. And now the junior person, he's frustrated, he hasn't learned anything, at least they don't feel that they're learning at the rate they need to be learning, and so they leave. So, um, you know, you have to factor in that it's expensive to hire people, 
even if you're putting them on a draw, it's expensive. Uh, that's that's definitely a different mindset to to approach when I guess you're getting mentored because I'm a huge fan of mentorship uh, in in anything you do. I think finding somebody with more experience that's a good mentor at that that isn't hiding information, isn't doing it for the wrong reasons. I think that um, that it's an invaluable uh, thing that you can have. You know, so I'm using different terminology, a different type of language. You've heard me say, you know, law of prosperity versus law of scarcity, um, how people are operating, you know, what, what are their habits and such. I was very fortunate when I first started out in the industry to work for a gentleman who engaged business coaches. And I had the opportunity to work with a gentleman. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but his name was John Cundiff. And he created this model of how do you accelerate change? How do you accelerate a team's performance? So some of the, the language that I'm speaking, the law of prosperity, law of uh, scarcity, is his language. And so it was, a, it was a process, it was a method that we went through to really understand how can we um, accelerate a transaction? How do we accelerate um, working together as a team? And that's where the trust comes in. You know everyone is in a position where they strive for their own identity right so that junior broker coming in wants to establish their identity but oftentimes that is um, not allowed because they are supporting someone who is senior and it's about the senior person's identity so creating an opportunity in an environment where everyone can allow um, you know to aspire to the identity of what they want in the marketplace, right? Um, it gives them an opportunity to really shine. And I think all of us, unless you're just, I don't know, I think everyone to their core want to be recognized and want to be valued and want to know that they mean something to the organization. Um, I mean, you've seen various leadership, um, you know, quotes and such, but you know, if you just let a person know their value, they'll work much harder than the person who is being chastised and the person who's like being told what they're doing wrong versus what they're doing right. Mm -hmm. So it means going in there, um, helping to assess the organization, letting people know they're valued and they, they matter. Um, you know, it's, I'm sure there's stats out there. I don't have them, but you know, it goes without saying that if you're running a healthy organization with a strong culture and shared core values and people who really want to, sh when they show up, they want to work, you're going to outbeat the competition time and time again. But yet we still believe in the industry that it's, and again, I, I don't want to say a blank blanket statement mm -hmm. because even within various organizations that may be deemed not the necessarily the best culture, there are good people in that organization. So let's not, this is not a blanket statement. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be hasty in my generalizations. But when you're looking at organizations, I mean, essentially, you know, they're organisms. They're, they're something that's living, it's mm -hmm. breathing. And um, it's just important that you, when, when your employees are with you, they need to be valued. And um, they need to also, it's important that employers realize that they have to give their employees a balanced uh, lifestyle because right now and what's going on. And I think, 
you know, as, as, as difficult as this pandemic has been, and, you know, it's just been, it's been a lot of stress on a lot of people, but it has also brought families closer. And I think, you know, what, what has happened too is now that the people have been home and working from home, those who can and those who've had, and by no means, I'm not making a blanket statement. I know people have had a difficult working from home, uh, but those who have had the ability and the flexibility to work from home, they realize, wow, there's more to just me running into the office uh-huh. and grinding it out. And so, um, and you're seeing this in the industry, you know, what's going to happen to office space? How is this going to affect the office market? And it, there's going to be some type of hybrid, I have to believe. So, um, but to the point of back to the organization, if you're valuing your people, they'll work 10 times harder for you. Okay, so we are getting towards the end of our time. I do want to ask you two last questions, basically to sum everything up. Um, And I just want a yes or no answer, even though I'm sure you have more to say than just the yes or the no on it. So I'm really, really simplifying it. Can culture make a company? Absolutely, yes. Can culture break a company? Absolutely, yes. Okay. I think uh, I, I, I tend to agree with that. And uh, obviously, I know that there's more that can be said about that. But, you know, uh, it just shows the value that a positive culture and a, a healthy, let's not say positive, a healthy culture can have on a business and the individuals who are functioning within it, whether they're employees or independent contractors like you see in the real estate world. Absolutely. So I really want to thank you again for coming on. I, I love the information that you gave. I'm going to take it and uh, hopefully work it into my own lifestyle and how I act within the office, even though I'm working remotely 99% of the time um, these days. But I'm definitely going to put take everything to heart and try and uh, be as integral to the organization that I'm involved in as possible. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And whatever I can do to help, just give me a call. All right. Thank you very much. Wow. What a great episode with Elka. I learned so much and I hope you all did as well. Um, Really understanding how the culture and other aspects of your business can, can really make or break the success. It's not a matter of what you sell or what you do. It's a matter of how you do it. And having inefficiencies and cancerous individuals within a business is such a bad thing that um, just having somebody like Elka or even somebody within the firm um, be able to have an outside view and see what the sum of the parts are in order to improve the business and make it as good as it can be. Uh, it's, it's just so important. Um, taking time from you know every now and then to analyze what's going on within your business is so important. And individuals like Elka are out there to help you do what you need to to be where you want in your goals for the business. Um, So next week, we will be talking to one of my lifelong friends. Used to play basketball with him uh, back in the day in junior basketball. Uh, He and I were the two uh, three-point shooters, so we always had a nice little rivalry. Now he's my golf buddy, Um, so I'm really excited to interview him and uh, see what he has to say. He is a real estate attorney, And uh, he's got a lot of information to give us. So I'm excited to have him on next week. And we will see you next time on The Green.